All right, welcome to the Forecast Direct podcast. I'm Leo Feller, a senior economist at UCLA Anderson Forecast. And today we're honored to have with us Benga Ajalori. He's a senior economist at the Center for American Progress. Benga is an expert on regional economic development, macroeconomic policy, uh, and issues of diversity and inclusion, all of which we'll be discussing today. Benga, thanks so much for, for joining us. So I'd like to start off by asking you, this pandemic and recession, we've seen that it's disproportionately affected uh, people of color, it has disproportionately affected women. Uh, we've seen higher COVID infection rates and higher mortality rates for people of color. We've seen unemployment increase more and then come down more slowly for people of color. Uh, and so I wanted to get your perspective. Why, why are we seeing these disproportionate impacts? Well, thank you for the invitation. I appreciate you having me. And there are several reasons why we see higher COVID infection rates and higher mortality rates for people of color. Unfortunately, we don't have the hours in a day to be able to go through all the reasons, but to briefly kind of talk about it, we could basically boils down to is historical structural discrimination and um, that has segregated communities of colors into certain neighborhoods that have let the infection and unemployment rates and things like that to explode. Um, we think about how these neighborhoods were closer to polluting industries uh, we think about people having less access to healthcare um, through less insurance, but also even just the availability of healthcare facilities for them to take care of it. So once this COVID virus hit, it made it harder for communities of color to be able to tackle it. And is there some element of exposure to the virus? So not only, uh, you know, once exposed your healthcare treatment, uh, your healthcare options, but also the sectors in which, uh, you know, people in these communities, people of color disproportionately work in, that, that is, you know, makes them more likely to be uh, frontline workers um, or makes it more likely uh, that uh, in some way they have more exposure um, to, you know, to COVID. You bring up a very good point, and it's a whole concept of what people have been talking about, essential workers. And then essential workers tend to be disproportionately people of color. But I actually want to pause on the word essential workers because the way the policy has, has happened, these are not essential workers, but they are workers in essential jobs. Because, because they're more likely to be exposed to it, we don't see as much of the hazard pay. We don't see any of sort of the PPP for them. And so one of these things is that you look at, say, at pharmacy, grocery stores, uh, you can think about gig workers who drive and deliver stuff that they're going to be more exposed to this. And you even look at some of the data in terms of who's more likely to work from home or people with higher incomes, people with more wealth. And these are not communities of color. And so because of that, they're more likely to be exposed to the virus. In terms of the economic impacts, how, how, is the, how are these communities uh, being affected economically uh, during this recession? And how is that different from, from, from other areas? So one of the biggest difference is that this downturn has hit women much harder than men. In most of the previous recessions, men always tend to be hit harder and earlier, but this time this was all about women. And so a lot of that has to do with the industry. So you look at leisure and hospitality, which are actually disproportionately Latina. So they, in April, I think May, had an unemployment rate of 20%. So they had the highest unemployment rate. You look at what's happening with state and local governments, and there's been a lot of unemployment loss, which tend to be disproportionately Black women. 
And then even just generally, we saw in September that nearly a million women dropped out of the labor force. And a lot of that has to do with the lack of the caregiving infrastructure. So they ended up dropping out of the labor force because even though you have these two parent households, these impacts are gendered. And so women have hit harder, which is the biggest difference in this recession than previous ones. So what can we do in our current situation? Right? If, you know, if we could go back in time, there are many things that we would have addressed that we couldn't be in this situation, but the situation that we're in now, what could we do to make the recovery more equal? So I think the simplest thing is just have more fiscal relief large fiscal relief, significant fiscal relief. And part of you know this discussion has been frustrating because we saw in March and April, there was a lot of momentum from Congress to pass bills up to Fort Trillion. We had the Family First Act and then we had the CARES Act, uh, PPP. We had all sorts of financial relief that went into combating this virus and combating this pandemic. And the biggest thing is that it worked. All the research that's been done over the last couple of months showed that it helped keep the economy afloat and it helped people tackle it, help businesses get through. But the problem is since April, we haven't done anything. And the thing is the virus is actually worse now than it was in April. So the simplest thing is just do what we did when it first hit and just do more of that. So what, what form would that take, right? So would you advocate for uh, more of this uh, payroll protection program that gave money to businesses? Would you advocate uh, for uh, extensions of unemployment benefits? Would you advocate for the direct stimulus checks uh, for families with less than 100,000 of income uh, that we saw early on? Um, is there, sh should it be more targeted at this stage uh, or should we do anything differently at this stage than we had done earlier? I would add one more option to what you listed and that would be all of the above. Okay. <laughs> Again, we're looking at 250,000 people have died, over 10 million. I know California just passed 1 million cases. And so again, we're worse off than we were before. And the things that we did before, so like that economic impact payments, those direct checks, that helped. The expanded UI benefits, and not just benefits for weeks. We talked about uh, had paid leave, paid sick and family leave. All these things help people kind of weather the storm that's continuing. And so we continue to do that. And so one of the things we noticed is that, okay, with unemployment insurance, there were some issues that were problematic that had some sort of fixes to, to that in terms of being able to provide people uh, with income. Uh, Paycheck Protection Act, one of the things we noticed is that it didn't go to black uh, firms, it didn't go to Hispanic firms. And so in doing that again, we could try to fix that. Like we've seen some of the things, we've seen some of the problems that came up with it, but we know we can fix that and be more targeted to communities of color, entrepreneurs of color, women, other groups like that. But we still need to do all this stuff because one of the things we have to do, and I think uh, you guys in California or in LA are actually going on lockdown for the next three weeks. Yeah. That's gonna harm businesses. But what you can do is pay businesses to be able to weather the storm so they can pay their rent. Uh, we think about eviction moratoriums, things like that. What we want to do is we want to tackle this virus, but we don't want it to harm the households, small businesses, and even the state and local government. So we provide funding, which the federal government can do to help them weather that storm through the winter. I want to touch on a point that you mentioned, which was in uh, April, May, this money did not get to uh, black owned businesses, black owned, uh, black entrepreneurs, uh, businesses owned by people of color. 
as easily as it did for, uh, for other populations. So what can we do better this time around? What, was the, what prevented it from actually getting to these communities uh, the first time around that we could do differently? The biggest problem was access to capital. And so what we know is that African-Americans, Hispanic, other uh, groups have difficulty having access to capital because of banking. So some of these people are either underbanked or unbanked. And so what we need to do is be able to kind of push banks to kind of lend out to other people. Because what happened a lot of times is that if you have an existing relationship with a bank, then you would be able to get this easier access and forms of people that you could work with to be able to access that. And a lot of these other groups don't have that. And so banks, because they're just trying to do it, they'll do what they know, they do what, what they're comfortable with, what they're familiar with. So one of the things is to be able to push banks to lend to other groups. The other thing is tap in other groups. So like CDFIs, which are community development financial institutions, credit unions, other groups that actually do target these uh, communities of color and actually kind of give them more capacity to reach these different groups. And so one of the things we have to think about is like who has access to capital and how can we open up more avenues to the access to capital? I wanna uh, touch on that with an example from Nigeria and Brazil that I'm familiar with, which is in both of these countries, many of the social programs uh, are offered through banks. Uh, and so oftentimes publicly owned banks, uh, but through banks nonetheless. And so what that enables is that everyone who is receiving some kind of social program, uh, be it social security, be it uh, some kind of uh, welfare payments in Brazil, it's the um, uh, basic income uh, program called Bolsa Familia uh, that provides uh, small amounts of cash to, to poor households. But because it goes through the banking system, it ensures that these populations have bank accounts and it guarantees them some access to, uh, to the banking system when, you know, as we have right now with stimulus payments uh, being sent out, it guarantees that that facility already exists. Um, so, you know, hopefully as we look forward, this, this might be an avenue that we invest in uh, during the next four years, uh, making sure that, that these communities are banked. So there's actually policy out there referring to like postal banking, mm -hmm. where there's been a lot of discussion about the post office all year long. And one of the things to actually kind of strengthen that is to actually have postal banking so it gives access to these groups. One of the groups that we haven't talked about are rural communities and do a lot of work on it. So that's another place that they don't have access to capital, but they do have post offices and post offices are kind of like the one place for them to be able to do stuff. And so if we give the opportunity for banks to have that, then it's actually gonna make these programs a lot more um, efficient and help reach these groups that haven't been reached. Let me shift gears a little bit to a different topic, which is uh, there's been a lot of research on how discrimination hurts the, the overall economy. Uh, and so I wanted to get your perspective. What, where does the harm come in, aside from the obvious harm that, that you know, discrimination is, is you know, something that uh, is egregious that we can't tolerate? Um, how does it actually hurt the economy overall and make us all worse off? So the way to think about how discrimination hurts the economy is that we think especially in economics, we always think about people's productive capacity and how that adds to the broader economy. And what discrimination does is that it limits people's productive capacity. So if you look, there was actually a study just recently done by Citibank estimating the cost of discrimination to the economy. And it's estimated since 2000 that it's cost the economy $16 trillion 
that discrimination. And it's through kind of a number of different avenues. So one, you look at the racial wage gap that African-Americans, Hispanic, even Asians in a certain case, especially Asian women, there's a wage gap between them. If we close that gap, that's individuals who earn more money, which means they spend more money, which goes into the economy, has that multiplier effect, and that has a big impact. The other thing you look at the home ownership gap. And so we have housing segregation and it's not historical. There's examples now where you even look at um, mortgage applications. So African-Americans pay a higher interest rate for the same exact uh, house. And therefore that costs them this, that gives them less money. And so it costs them more. And so if we close that, um, give people uh, access to housing in places where housing values rise, then that's gonna provide more wealth, which then again, adds to the economy. We look at education, that there's differences in education. We think about the debt crisis and things like that, is that if you provide more access to education and people are able to get higher uh, wages through better jobs, then that also has an impact. And so you look at all these things, and if we're able to close these gaps, that means there's more income, increases productive capacity of all the individuals, and then that helps out the broader economy to the tune of $16 trillion. So I want to add one more thing to, to this list, which is productive capacity, but also innovation. And, you know, one of the, uh, you mentioned that the Citibank uh, research on this, there's also research by Professor Lisa Cook and Yanyan Yang, uh, and they're looking at how would closing or, or reducing this ending discrimination uh, allow for the productive allocation of people to, to innovative jobs um, that would be their comparative advantage. And how would that increase in innovation uh, actually uh, stimulate the economy even further? Um, and so they actually came up with, with similar numbers as the 16 trillion that you mentioned. Um, and so you know, they're basically saying that GDP per capita uh, would be uh, you know, 0 0.6 uh, to 4.4% higher uh, and so this is every year, right? That we'd be we'd be uh, having higher GDP, and and so in essence, if you take our economy at 21 trillion, uh, 0.6 to 4.4 percent ends up being 126 billion up to 924 billion. That's the the additional wealth that we would have as a country by making sure that we weren't discriminating. Uh, certain uh, individuals, certain, certain groups, and allowing them to be allocated uh, to their comparative advantage where they'd be able to have the, the, the greatest effect on innovation. Um, we've seen this you know, to an extent with the development of the vaccines that uh, you know, the Moderna and BioNTech were you know, minority individuals that, uh, and immigrants who, um, who helped develop these vaccines. Uh, and so this is a way in which you know, we're, we're, we're all collectively much better off when we ensure people access to, to these innovative roles. So on that note, I wanted to ask you a question, bringing this back to California, which is that voters in California recently rejected this proposition uh, that would have overturned the ban on affirmative action. And the question that I, that I have for you is, if we are constrained in our ability to reduce barriers to uh, discrimination, to uh, improve access uh, to, to roles, what, what, what is it that we can do 
to, to close the, the gap between, uh, between different groups of people. I'm glad you brought up that example. Um, having grown up in California, I'm very familiar with the proposition process. And a lot of the propositions, I grew up in the LA area in the late 80s, early 90s, and there was a lot of propositions that were basically anti-communities of color. So there were some against immigration. There was the one originally about affirmative action. And I think the biggest thing we have to do is reckon with our history. Because a lot of people will say, well, we can't do things based off race. We can't make these considerations based off race. And what people misunderstand is that we already do that. All the stuff that we do is based off race. It's just based off of white people. Because if you think about it, everything in our history, you know, you think about, you know, the, you know, in terms of uh, education, you think about high schools, you think about parental education, you think about housing. All our laws, our legal systems were created so that white people would have the best opportunity to get ahead. So everything that we do is implicitly based off of race. And so I think if people had that understanding, then things wouldn't look as, as oh, we're making considerations based off of race. What we're doing is we're opening up the pie to everyone else to be able to contribute. And so if people have that understanding, understand that history and how things developed, then people have a better understanding of what needs to do so that we could actually, going back to the issue of innovation and discrimination, that we actually could make our economy better off. So I think the biggest thing that we have a problem with is when we talk about issues of racial justice, it's always you think about, oh, well, we want to make things better for some other people. When no, no, this is what we want, what we want to do is make the economy better for all of us. But we can't do that if people are not able to contribute as much as they can. And what we have to do is decrease these structural barriers that already exist so that everyone else can contribute. So I want to bring up a uh, an example from uh, this lawsuit between Harvard and Students for Fair Admissions. And this lawsuit is basically Harvard saying, look, you know, yes, we do consider race, but our considerations of race actually have no effect on admissions once we control for everything else. And there's something troubling there, which is it's basically saying, look, once we look at what high schools people attend, what, you know, people's incomes, background of people's parents, right, then race doesn't have any effect. But that basically means that there is this, this dichotomy in our society where you can tell, you know, you can predict pretty well uh, someone's uh, race based on uh, the high school they attended, the neighborhood that they're from, uh, their parents' education, uh, income. You take all those factors and race no longer has uh, predictive ability in whether or not you get admitted. Right. And so the, the interesting part here is that, you know, this lawsuit is saying considerations of race, you know, these other things explain that that pretty well, what how, you know, the admissions process, whether or not you can get, uh, you know, there will be any benefit uh, of race to, to your you know, probability of admission. Um, but it also signals that we have a very divided uh, society. Otherwise, these things wouldn't be able to control for, for the effect of race. Um, so my question to you is, does other forms, do these other ways of considering admissions uh, to try to close gaps, do they work or, or is there still something that we're, we're, we're leaving out if we consider 
education, if we consider high school, if we consider um, what areas people are from, can we use that as a method of, of closing racial gaps? So I would say it's not a method of closing racial gaps because we have to go back to the root. And again, that goes back to understanding how we got here. And so it is about uh, segregated neighborhoods and high schools and things like that. And this, uh, I forgot who the author was, but was talking about opportunity hoarding. That we have these groups of people move up and then kind of close the gates. And so the question is these things to help mitigate some of these gaps in terms of admissions to these schools is that going to is that part of the process of getting there and in certain cases it might be and one of the things i always have to kind of laugh about these this lawsuit about harvard and people saying that it's unfair to focus on race when you look at legacy right and how much legacy admits are you know and not just at ivy league schools there was a study uh, uc schools where mm -hmm. people legacy admits and then you think about the whole um Operation Varsity Blues scandal with all those schools across the country where people, rich people were using what they call like the side door to get in. So people are always finding ways other than race of kind of sneaking uh, in the door. And so why we have this focus on race is when there's so many other kind of unfair advantages that are given. And so I think our, if we wanna close racial gaps, we have to look at the source and look at the whole system and like the barriers through everything. So, I mean, you look at housing, education, but then you even look at criminal justice system. Like that is a huge issue that causes these, that creates these structural barriers so that certain people are more likely to go in the criminal justice system, which then limits their um, prospects for earnings, anything afterwards. And then when people are outside of it, are there things that we can do to remove structural barriers to help people out? So this is not, so, while this is helpful towards moving towards closing racial gaps, we can't look at it as like, oh, this is the answer to doing that. Because what, what the problem is that these problems are you know, more deep rooted and we really have to get at the root to really uh, fix these problems. So I wanted to, to mention uh, Michelle Obama's Becoming where she talks about being at Princeton to your point about legacy admissions she you know, looks around and realizes that everyone had some different kind of advantage that got them to be there. And you know, there was nothing, you know, she was no less deserving than anyone else of, of being at Princeton. Um, and you know, to your point about legacy admissions uh, you know, or uh, you know, the, the unfair advantages that people have uh, that then this gets them into into these uh, basic uh, trajectories that allow them to advance, um, and that's that's systemic. Um, so, looking forward, we have a Biden administration coming in. Uh, what are your thoughts for for the prospects for addressing some of these issues that we've experienced during this past year, from uh, you know the the uh, police violence, from uh, disproportionate uh, economic effects uh, on on uh, communities of color. Um, what what can we do during these next four years to really make a difference uh, on these two fronts? I think the biggest thing. I'll point out two things. One, we have laws on the books to enforce discrimination to counteract discrimination. What we don't have are the staff budget and resources to actually act upon that. And there's been a lot of 
cut in budgets. So as part of the whole small government movement, there's been a cut. So you think about the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, we think about occupational safety and handling administration, especially during this pandemic, you think about meatpacking plants and we talked before about essential workers, that there's no OSHA enforcement of these things to keep people safe. But the one I actually wanna focus on is the Internal Revenue Service, the IRS, that their goal is, you know, part of the enforcement is to get tax cheats. Now their budget over the last 10 years has been slashed. And so their enforcement basically goes down to going after people, quote unquote, EITC frauds. And so people who kind of cheat on that. And the reason why is because it's easy and it's cost effective. All they have to do is there's an automatic letter generating service where they send it to people and then say, okay, you need to, we think you're engaging in fraud, you need to pay us back. The problem is that that disproportionately hits communities of color. Like there was a study by ProPublica that showed that the highest uh, enforcement was this county in Mississippi that's like 60% black and median income is like 20,000. IRS should not be going after those people. IRS should be going after the corporations and high income, high income households, those with a lot of wealth who are engaging in tax avoidance and tax cheating. And so there's actually, it, it, in putting more money into the IRS to enforce that, that actually has a positive return to the federal government because they're able to get more revenue that they should have had, which then goes to fund those operations. So one of the biggest thing we could do is just funding these agencies that are supposed to go act after discrimination. So the IRS, the EEOC, OSHA, all these groups that can actually help close these gaps. And that's one of the things they do. The other thing is through criminal justice policy. And this is twofold. One, we wanna limit how many people enter the criminal justice system. And then the other thing is people who come through that system, we wanna make their opportunities after they've served their time, we want these returning citizens to be able to have any access to all the programs to help them in, engage in economic mobility. And so in terms of the front end, we could limit its sentencing, limiting uh, felonies, what counts as a felony to misdemeanors. We could, uh, you think about the fines and fee system, which is very, very onerous, that you have someone who gets a fine, and then if they can't pay that fine, then they end up going to jail. They go to jail, and then that puts them in, on a different trajectory. And so if we limit those kind of things, but again, going back to IRS and revenue, a lot of these states and localities rely on fines and fees because they don't have the revenue from other taxes to be able to fund services. So if we you know, just fund government, federal, state, local, that's gonna have positive impacts on discrimination, on criminal justice, on a lot of these pro problems that we've seen, you know, especially in the last four years, but have been problems for decades. Yeah, I am very much in agreement with you on these things that uh, you know, there's, I, I guess the, the, the good news is that there's so much opportunity to improve that, you know, hopefully we'll be able to make with very, you know, easy policy changes, be able to make large inroads during these next four years. Mm -hmm. Benga, thank you very much for your time. It was really a pleasure having you uh, join us today. And thank you very much, Leo. And yeah, thank you for a very interesting conversation.